following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the second chapter of the Apostle Peter's second letter. Second Peter chapter 2, as we continue to make our way through this short but substantial letter in the New Testament, we come this morning to verses 10 through 16. And for the sake of understanding this section in its context, I'd like to begin reading at verse 1 with you. And so as always, it's with a great sense of privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the life-giving, faith-sustaining, mind-renewing, soul-purifying words of the true and living God. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, But cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction." suffering wrong or harm as a wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, 
accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's an indisputable fact that belief and behavior are inextricably connected. In other words, a person's creed, what he or she believes, will always determine that person's character. In fact, the two are so connected that there are times when a person's behavior determines what he or she believes. That is, their character determines their creed. For example, those who truly believe that God is holy will seek to live in light of his holiness. Those who truly believe that God is a righteous God who will judge the world in righteousness will seek to live in light of the day of judgment. That belief determines their behavior. But it's equally true that a person's behavior plays into a person's beliefs. That's why those who persist in pursuing a life of sin and wickedness refuse to believe the biblical truth that one day they will stand before God and have to give an account of themselves to him. And sadly, this can be true of even Christians. The Christian, for example, who's behaving in a fleshly, carnal way, ends up believing that God is love and only love to the point where he or she thinks very little of the passages in the Bible that teach us that God is holy and righteous and just. And thankfully, where this is the case, in the life of a genuine believer, God will discipline that individual and correct that individual so as to open their eyes to see who he really is and to then live in light of that knowledge. Thank God that he is a father who rebukes and corrects his children. And this is what we've been seeing in our study of 2 Peter the past few weeks, where the apostle has been describing false teachers. What these individuals believe and what they don't believe determines how they behave. To be specific, Peter tells us in chapter 3 that they don't believe that Christ will return. They don't believe that there will be a a final judgment. They believe that all things will continue on as they are ever since the beginning of the world. They're just going to continue in this endless pattern of history. No second coming, no final judgment, and no accountability. That's really what they believed. But then we see how this belief plays into their behavior. We see how their creed determines their character. They live for the moment, not for eternity. They live to satisfy themselves, not to please God. They live to store up riches on earth, not to store up treasures in heaven. They live for themselves, not for the glory of God. Why? Because of what they believe. Now, as we delve into our passage today, I, wanna, I want you to just recall briefly the overarching purpose of this letter that we now know as Second Peter. 
the apostle is exhorting the church of Jesus Christ to be devoted to the scriptures so that they can exercise diligence in pursuing holiness and discernment when it comes to heretics. I want you to turn with me quickly to the very end of the letter, chapter 3, and I want you to see the two verses that essentially encapsulate the entire letter of 2 Peter, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. In a summary fashion, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So how do we ensure that we are not carried away with the error of lawless people? And how do we ensure that we do not lose our own stability as the people of God? Well, he answers that question in verse 18 by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That will prevent the Christian from being led astray and from losing his or her own stability in Christ. And the next question is, how do we grow in this grace? And how do we grow in this knowledge? Well, we saw back in chapter 1, verse 19, that this growth happens when we pay attention, when we devote ourselves to the prophetic word or to the Old Testament scriptures. Now we can look Peter in the eye and say, well, now that we have the complete Bible, the complete canon, we look to scripture in order to not be carried away. We look to Scripture to not be led astray. We look to Scripture as a lamp shining in a dark place. His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That's how we grow in knowledge, by paying attention to what the Scriptures are teaching us. So through this letter, think about it, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, is calling us as his church to be devoted to his word so that we can exercise diligence when it comes to holiness and discernment when it comes to heretics. Well, as we come to verses 10 through 16 this morning, Peter puts before us a profile of a deadly minister, a profile of a minister of death. And what I'd like to do is direct your attention to three characteristics of a deadly minister as we see it here in the passage. But again, you need to understand that it would be easy at this point to turn the message off and say, well, thank God I'm not led astray by false teachers. Thank God that I'm in a company of good believers, sound doctrine, that I really have no need to worry about this. I really have no danger before me. But again, as firmly as you might be rooted in the scriptures, hear God's word. Listen to what God is telling you through his word. As we unveil these characteristics, God is speaking to us in order to equip us. Characteristic number one, a deadly minister is audaciously or boldly arrogant 
audaciously arrogant. Look at verses 10b through 13a, if you will. The the structure here is, is a little tricky, but I think you'll see it. He begins in verse 10b, he says, bold and willful. In other words, driven by self-will. The boldness is their audacity. They're audacious. They have no shame. They're out there. Bold and willful. And notice the first thing about them. They do not tremble as they blaspheme or slander or speak evil against the glorious ones. This is another tricky passage in the letter of Second Peter. Thankfully, Jude gives us insight to what he's talking about. Turn to the right and go to the book of Jude. I believe these glorious ones that he's referring to are referring, is referring to these high principalities and powers that are in the unseen realm. Not just angels, because he contrasts angels with these glorious ones in that very verse, right? They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, in other words, if angels are these glorious ones, he would have just said, they do not tremble as they blaspheme angels, for even angels. No, he's differentiating the two. Somehow, in God's order of the universe, he has created various realms of authority. We read about in Paul's letters, the principalities, the powers over this present darkness. We're we're not given a whole lot of insight into the structure, the hierarchy of the angelic world, but this could very well be the Bene Elohim that we talked about last week, the sons of God there in Genesis chapter 6 that weren't necessarily your typical angels, but were of, of a higher class, a higher authority that, as Jude says, they didn't stay within the realm of their authority. We're not too sure, but notice what Jude says regarding this same thing. Verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And notice the connection here, verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So you see here, if we go back to 2 Peter, these glorious ones are more than likely evil angels in the unseen realm. Because he contrasts and says, not even Michael is acting like these individuals. For there is a dispute, which you can read about in that second temple literature piece called uh, The Testament of Moses. There is a story about Michael contending with Satan about the body of Moses. But his point here is simply to illustrate that not even Michael... Not even the angels who are more powerful and glorious than these false teachers. Even the angels are humble enough to commit their judgment to the Lord. He's highlighting their arrogance, their boldness, their self-will. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious 
ones. By, by the way, there's no two words there in the Greek. It's literally as they blaspheme the glories. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Like Jude says, they commit the judgment to the true judge who will judge. And we're given insight into that as well, that we are not to seek vengeance on one another. We are to know that God will be the one to avenge his people and to execute justice. But they're bold, they're willful, self-will, driven by their own will, and they blaspheme beings that not even angels will blaspheme because they commit them to the Lord. Verse 12 says, but these like irrational animals, unthinking beasts. Peter's wants us to understand the nature of the false teacher. He likens them to not just animals, but irrational animals. Animals operate on instinct, not reason. They, they, they are programmed to hunt and to prey and these types of things. They are irrational. They're creatures of instinct, as he says here. Like animals, their order in God's universe, they're born to be caught and destroyed. We are had to have dominion over these animals. But these are the same way. Their ultimate end is destruction. They identify with animals. They blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant. The reason they blaspheme these glorious ones, and we don't know exactly what they're doing here. Peter doesn't give us a whole lot of insight. It could be much like the account of the sons of Sceva in the book of Acts, just pretending to have this authority to go and cast out any kind of demon they please. We're starting to see, I mean, if we look around today at some of these false teachers who just claim authority over this demon and the devil, and they talk as if, as if they have all this power, it, it could be something like that. That's what's happening here. ultimately because they are ignorant. They don't know. They will also be destroyed in their destruction. And the end of the verse, 13, says, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. In other words, they'll be suffering harm for the harm they've caused. By the way, in the Greek, I was amazed this week to see all the play on words that Peter is using here that we completely miss out on in our English translations. But it's, it, it's so... It it, it saturates the entire passage. Essentially, what he's saying here is they will be suffering harm for the wage of their harm that they've caused. So Peter is reminding his readers that all the harm that these false teachers have caused will ultimately fall back upon their own head in destruction. They are audaciously arrogant. Now, even though we're talking about false teachers here, what are the sins that God is calling our attention to in this passage? Arrogance, self-will, ignorance that produces people who act like irrational animals. In other words, they have no idea who they're, who they're dealing with. Ultimately, these glorious beings, not to say that they are glorious in a beautiful way, but they are, they are otherworldly. They are not of this creation. They are not of this created order. They are, they, are, they are created beings for sure, but they are not of this world. In that sense, they are glorious. You see, ignorance often produces arrogance. 
For example, when you find an ignorant, or you, when you find an arrogant individual, they they're arrogant because they're ignorant. They they don't know who they really are in the eyes of God. Right? These are the proud. They walk around tall above everyone else. Why do they do that? Why, why, why are people arrogant and conceited? It's from, a, it's from ignorance. It's from a lack of knowledge of who God is as the one who supplies breath to man, as the one who supplies gifts to man, talents to man, resources to man, life and breath and everything. When you have an individual who truly believes and understands that God is the source of that person's breath, there's a humility there. There's no arrogance there. There's no conceited heart there. You're put in your place by the knowledge you have of yourself and the knowledge you have of the God who reigns over you. They are audaciously arrogant. Characteristic number two, as we look at verses 13b now through 14b, is that they are shamelessly sensual. Shamelessly sensual. Notice what Peter says here. He says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. There's their shamelessness. In other words, when most people are given over to debauchery, even in that day, in the Roman world, it was considered pretty bad that you would begin drinking or partying in the daytime. Right? It's even, there's, I mean, we have something of that in our common grace today that we see in our culture, right? It's just even stores, you know, don't sell alcohol until a certain time. I don't even know if that's still a thing anymore. But, but there's this thing where, as, as Paul alludes to in his letter to the Thessalonians, that those who get drunk get drunk at night. They do their wickedness at night. He says, these individuals here, they count it pleasure to revel, to go about in their godlessness in the daytime. And we're going to see what that looks like in, in the case of these false teachers, in other words, there's no shame. They sin out in the open. They sin out in the light. Next characteristic is that they are blots and blemishes. In other words, they are defilements to the church. The church, you know, has been purified by the blood of Christ. The church has been made white. The church has been made clean. She is, even in the present moment, being sanctified by the washing of water with the word God, who sought out this bride for his son, is still in the moment sanctifying this bride, preparing this bride. When this bride is, pre- is, is presented to Christ, she will, at that point, be a prepared bride. She's prepared herself, and God has prepared her for his son. However, in the midst of this church known as the bride of Christ... Picture the church as a spotless white bride in the world right now. God is working with her. He is shaping her to look more and more like Christ. In the midst of this bride, there are blots and there are blemishes. There are defilements on this dress, so to speak. And who are they? They are not only false teachers, but they are false converts. They are false believers. They are the weeds in the midst of the wheat. They are the the, the chaff in the midst of the wheat. They are the goats in the midst of the sheep. They are defilements. They are blots and blemishes. They don't belong here. And it says they are reveling in their deceptions. Their whole life is characterized by lies and deceptions. 
they themselves having been deceived by the evil one and now being utilized by that same evil one. They revel in their deceptions. And notice, while they feast with you. So here we finally get to the, the picture that Peter's not just referring to a future tense. Hey, this is going to happen in the future. He says they're in your midst now. They feast with you now. Uh, Jude calls this feast a love feast. Many believe that this is like the Lord's table, but it was something that was associated whenever the people of God came together in the Lord's table. There was, a, there was some kind of agape feast. There was a love feast. There was a, 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 a fellowship meal. He says, they're there in your midst while you're feasting with one another, talking about Christ. He says, they're there reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. There's no shame. They're shamelessly sensual. Notice that they have this motive to deceive, and that's it. And it's while they feast with the people of God. These are not people who are worshiping with the church for the glory of Christ. They are there utilizing the temple of God for their own ends temple of God, the church. They, are, they, they use the church. They, as we saw earlier on in verse 3, they, they exploit the church all while they feast with you. It just goes to show, friends, that right now we live in a, a mixed congregation. We live in an era of mixed people, right? We might call this the visible church to help us make the distinction that in the visible church, we have both believers and false believers. We have converts and we have false converts. We have those who are truly looking to Christ, but in that same congregation of mixed peoples, there are those who think that they're saved or know that they're not saved, but are nevertheless in the midst of the camp, in the midst of the congregation for a plethora of different ends whether they're there just to meet a, need, a social need, whether they're there to uh, you know, get an emotional boost for the week, they're really not there to worship Christ. They're just there to perhaps please a spouse, to please their children, to please their parents. They're, they're really not part of the church. They use the church for their own ends. Well, Peter says that's what's happening with these false teachers in the midst of the church as he spoke, as he wrote. And notice how he describes their sensuality in verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery. Literally, they have eyes full of an adulteress. In other words, what this means is that, well, that's Jesus taught regarding the eye and regarding lust. Their sensuality is to the degree that they view every woman as a potential candidate for adultery. This is why they are blots and blemishes within the congregation, within the bride, the spotless bride of Christ, is that while people are going around talking about Christ, strengthening one another, all the more as the day is drawing near, stirring up one another to love and good works, there are individuals, specifically false teachers, but we know this goes beyond false teachers, to those who are there to feed and uh, fuel their lusts. They view every woman in the congregation as a potential candidate for adultery. 
They're not pure in mind because they're not pure in the eyes. And it says here they are insatiable for sin. In other words, there's no limit to their sin. Like the Proverbs talk about, the eye that can never be satisfied. That's how these individuals are. And notice what they do here. They entice unsteady souls. So you have the church, and within the church you have unsteady souls, and that's exactly who they go for. The word entice me here means, it's taken from the hunting and, 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 and fishing language of the day. It means to, to entice by bait, to entice, to lure in with bait. And who do they do it to? It's not those who are firmly rooted in the gospel. It's not those who are firmly rooted in the word of God. They entice, they target, they bait unsteady souls. Unsteady souls. Souls that aren't firmly rooted. Perhaps souls like to use the language or the imagery of the parable of the sower. Souls that have had an exposure to the gospel, but when that seed uh, when that seed was given life, it didn't sink down quite deep enough. And so it was unsteady. It was unfirm. It was not firm. And so eventually it is plucked up. They entice unsteady souls. This is who they look for, both in Peter's day and in our day. Again, I mentioned a few weeks ago that those who were drawn to the false teachers of our day we, we tend to view them as victims, merely. But as we see in Paul's writings, it's these types of individuals who accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So while we can view them from a big picture as victims of false teaching, victims of Benny Hinn, victims of these individuals out there that are, that are, that are, that are deceiving them, we also know that They want this kind of teaching because it suits their passions. It allows them to live the way they want. It allows them to pursue the financial ends that they are after. But they're unsteady souls. We're going to get back to this here in a bit of of what this means. And as we move on to the last one, notice in verses 14c through 16, they're not only audaciously arrogant and shamelessly sensual, having eyes full of adultery. That's all they think about. It says here that they are also competently covetous. In other words, they are skillfully covetous, skillfully greedy. Notice verse 14c. They have hearts trained in greed. There's the competence and covetousness. They are trained in greed at the core of their being. They are not just greedy. They've been trained in greed. By the way, the word trained in the Greek is the word from which we get our English word, gymnasium. They are trained in greed, experts in greed, experts in covetousness. They know how and what to say to unsteady souls. You see, there's, there's the level of deception here. There's the level of wickedness here that is just beyond the guy who's spouting things off that he's never thought about before or who might be incorrect here in what he's, what he's teaching and, and just slightly off in doctrine. No, these men, these people are trained in how to deceive people. Now, 
we ask, you know, is there an official school for this? It's the devil himself. It's doctrines of demons, right? It's, it's, it's their own deceitful hearts that train them, that study humanity to know the bait to put before them, to know what they're going to lure them in with. They are trained in greed, trained in covetousness. In fact, the word greed here is translated more so in the New Testament as the word covetous. They are trained in covetousness. And Peter says they are accursed children. They are accursed children. They are under the curse of God, which is another way of saying that they are under the wrath of God. Like Ephesians chapter 2 talks about, there are those who are children of wrath. Notice verse 15. Forsaking the right way, abandoning the right way, the straight way, the narrow way, the biblical way, they have gone astray. They've gone amiss. And notice, Peter doesn't just say they've gone astray into nothingness. No, they've followed another way. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. This takes us back to Numbers 22 through 23, where we have this mysterious character known as Balaam, this prophet amongst the, uh, amidst the people. When we look at the story of Balaam, we see that ultimately Balak, this king, had hired Balaam to curse the children of Israel so that he could defeat the children of Israel in battle. And what ends up happening is that while God sent Balaam, we see that the whole time he was motivated by payment, by wanting to be paid by Balak in order to prophesy, in order to minister, in order to bring a prophecy forward and, and curse the children of Israel. His whole motive was financial gain. And that's what he's saying here is that they have forsaken the right way and they followed the pattern of Balaam who loved gain, profit from wrongdoing. Verse 16, but at the end of the story, you read that he was rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey with human voice and ended up restraining the prophet's madness, the prophet's insanity. Why is Peter going to such lengths in order to paint the portrait, the profile of a deadly minister to us? Because it's not enough to know that these guys exist. We need to see their behavior because their behavior flows out of their belief. And notice what Peter's doing here is he's not necessarily saying false teachers will teach this and this and that. A false teacher, will you, you'll, you'll, you'll know him by his teachings. No, he's pointing back, back again and again and again to the lifestyle of these individuals trained in covetousness, trained in greed. They revel in the daytime. They're arrogant because they're ignorant. And most of the time they're ignorant because they are willfully ignorant, purposefully ignorant. As we wrap up this text this morning, I want to ask two questions. Number one, We've seen who these individuals target. It's unsteady souls. And so I have to ask the question, 
What are you doing to cultivate stability in your life? What are you doing to prevent yourself from being an unsteady, unstable soul? I want to give you some marks of an unstable man or an unstable woman in hopes that you will identify potential areas in your life where you could follow this kind of bait because you're unstable in certain areas. Number one, those who are unsteady and those who are unstable are always looking for something new. They're always looking for something new. A new discovery, a new revelation, new insights that the church has missed for hundreds of years. They're looking for something new. That's a sign that you're unstable. Because as Solomon says, and we can apply it to a broader perspective, there is nothing new under the sun. We have the word of God, as Micah says, he has told you, O man, what is good God has spoken in many times, in many ways through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We have everything we need to know about God, at least in this life, in the scriptures, in the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, of which the entire Old Testament pointed to and of which the entire New Testament points back to. But people who are unstable are always looking for something new, something new. Number two, they are always looking for something shocking. Something shocking, right? It's not just new, but it's, it's shocking. And, and when it's portrayed in a certain way, they, they, they live for the shock factor of it all, right? right? You've seen these individuals. You've heard these individuals. You've perhaps seen them on YouTube. They, they, bring a, they, they point to the Bible in order to highlight something shocking that, again, the church has missed for hundreds of years. And it, it, it draws their attention. It draws in the crowds. It draws in the oohs and the ahs. It's shocking. Unstable people are always looking to be shocked by something new versus just saturating themselves in the once-for-all given word of God of the Old and New Testaments. Unstable people are always desiring to be right in the midst of controversy. Right? It's, it's not wrong to have an opinion, but it's wrong to feel like you have to have an opinion of everything going on in the world today. That's a sign that you're unstable. You're not anchored down. This controversy arises and you flock to it. This controversy arises and you're there in the midst of it. And you know more about the controversy than you know the word of God. You know more about what's happening in, 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 in the culture than in the scripture. Another mark of the unstable man or unstable woman is not knowing the Bible. Not knowing the Bible. Now you say, well, of course, that's going to make a man or a woman unstable. But again, do you really know your Bible? Do you know how your Bible was put together? Do you think it was just a book that fell out of the sky one day, come from angels or come from God? Do you think the Bible is, is, a, is, a, is a holy library of disconnected books put together by a bunch of godly men over the course of 1,500 years that got together when they, you know, those who knew each other got together and, and, and those who didn't know each other, you know, picked up their writings and they just were just giving thoughts and religious ideas. That's, that's not the Bible. And if you think that's what the Bible is, you're going to be a very unstable person. Scripture was written over the course of almost 2, 
thousand years. Forty different authors, different areas of location where they lived, and yet, 66 books over the course of 1,500 years, and the unity of this book is staggering. We see that the central figure of this book is the Lord Jesus Christ and God's work in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of these writers were shepherds. Some of these writers were servants in palaces. Some of these writers were cupbearers. Some of these writers were kings. Some of these writers were farmers. Most of them had no interaction with one another. And yet the fact that the Spirit moved them all to create this library of 66 books throughout the course of 1,500 years with one grand theme, and that theme being salvation through faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is staggering. You have to know what your Bible is before you understand your Bible. And it's people who don't understand what their Bible is and people who don't understand their Bibles that are unsteady. In other words, if you don't know how to handle your Bible, you're also going to be unsteady. In other words, if you're going to get hung up on, on, on word studies and, well, this word means this over here and, and it has to mean this over here. And, and if you're interpreting the book of Revelation the way you're interpreting the book of Proverbs, you're going to have a wild conclusion. If, if, if you're interpreting you know, poetry the same way you're, you're interpreting historical narrative, you're going, to be in, you're, going to, you're going to come to some strange conclusions. You're to know, hey, I'm dealing with apocalyptic literature. We're going to think with apocalyptic mind, so to speak. Hey, we're, we're dealing with historical narrative here. The point is not to get into, you know, what is behind, symbolically, the, the, the water jar of the woman at the well. That's not the point of the story. See it as a whole that she's come to realize that this is the Messiah, You need to know your Bible, and you need to know how to handle your Bible in order to be a stable, steady individual. You're to understand that the Bible isn't just this this, this magic book of quotations where you can lay it by the window, and the wind blows it open to this random place, and you're like, oh, this is my word for today, and it's something about, you know, perfume filled with flies. And you say, well, what does this mean for me today? Lord, what are you telling me today through this perfume that, that, has, that has flies in it? Friends, that's not how you're to handle the scripture. You're to handle scripture in its context. What did it mean to those to whom it was originally written? What significance does it have on us today in light of that original context? You need to be able to understand and handle the Bible well. I would recommend... Uh, Vaughn Roberts' book, God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible. It's an excellent short read. You can find it in audio form. You can listen to it. I've listened to it several times during the, the shutdown in, in, in 2020. Excellent resource to, to, uh, in, in how to understand and how to put together and how to, how to see how Scripture has been put together over the years. What the theme of scripture is and what to look for, how to handle the Psalms and how to handle Luke and how to handle Esther and how to handle Revelation. It's a huge, huge help in creating stable Christians. Another mark of instability are, are, are those who 
It goes, kind of goes hand in hand. Are always tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You have the scriptures. Understand what God has given you. Another mark of the unstable is a fascination with being in the minority. Right? You, you've met these individuals. Perhaps you've given over. You've, 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 you've experienced this yourself. You want to be able to say... The whole majority of the church is going this way, but we understand things and it's going this way. And there's this obsession to be in the minority, to, to be that, that everyone has it wrong, but we, this small little group, we have it right. And when you can prove it and when you can do certain things to, to, to create that shock factor that you're in the minority of, 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 the, of the true remnant, people are attracted to that. People eat that stuff up like bait. Looking at these words, if you, if you go over to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter also uses this word again. 2 Peter 3, 16. Notice how he uses this, this word in its context. He's speaking of the Apostle Paul. He says, as Paul does in all his letters when he speaks of them, of these matters... There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. So notice that he couples ignorance with instability. Again, those who are ignorant tend to be the most unstable and ignorant in the main matter, right? Ignorant when it comes to the word of God. When you have an individual who confuses justification and sanctification, you're going to have a very unstable individual. Justification sets you in a place before God, a position before God that will never change. You are eternally declared righteous in his sight, and that never changes. But when you begin to confuse that with sanctification and God's ongoing process of changing you to become more like Christ, and you think that it's that that gives you the position before God of being accepted, you're in a very dangerous position because your justification is going to be going like this all the time. But the fact that he once and for all justifies us, brings us into a position at his right hand in Christ that never changes, that is the power to fight in the realm of sanctification. Justification fuels sanctification. Always and never the other way around. Ignorance fuels and creates instability. James says that the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. When you're double-minded, when you're not really anchored in mind, when you're not really of one mind, when, you, when, you, when you're two-faced, when you're a hypocrite, that, that is another mark of being unstable. And finally, James 3.8, this same word, unstable, is translated there as restless. An unstable man, an unstable woman, is someone who's restless. They can't just rest in Christ. They can't just rest in the scriptures. They can't just rest in, 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 in knowing Christ through the word. They're restless. Their souls never actually anchor down in anything. They are tossed to and fro all the time. Oftentimes, unstable people base everything on feeling. They, they, they base their position before God based on how they feel in Christ that day. If they feel convicted and guilty and, 
and down and filthy because of their conscience, something defiled their conscience, they tell themselves that they must not be saved. They must not be right with God because the fruit of righteousness is peace. The fruit of God working in us is peace. And I would be at peace if, well, friends, unstable people base everything on feeling, everything on experience, everything on the subjective experiences of, 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 of the Christian life and not in the objective truth of reality as we find it in the scriptures. And so... These are the individuals that are targeted by false teachers. And so what are you doing, I ask again, to cultivate stability in your life? Biblical, Christ-centered stability. To know what you believe and why you believe it. To know where you stand in Christ and how you got there. Oh, it's all of grace. It's all of God's work for you and then in you and not the other way around. And secondly... As we look at this text today, what sins is God calling to our attention? And what are we doing? What are you doing to put these sins to death? And I've broken them down by three because while there's, a, there's many sins mentioned, they all kind of flow from three main ones. Arrogance, sensuality, and covetousness. And now think of these. The opposite of arrogance is what? It's humility. These individuals that Peter is describing, they are ignorant and therefore they are arrogant. We, on the other hand, are called to be not ignorant, but informed and therefore humble. Unlike these individuals, we understand, there's, we're informed biblically of who God is, of who we are, and therefore there's a humility there. Secondly, He's warning us of being sensual people, impure in the eyes. You know, David talked about in Psalm 119, I will turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. Job goes as far as saying, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I might not gaze upon a virgin, that I might not gaze upon a woman. There are measures that the biblical authors took, that the biblical characters took in order to ensure that they are pure in mind and pure in the eyes. Jesus taught that the eye is the lamp of the body and where the, where the, lamp is, where, where the eye is bad, it's, the whole body is going to be full of darkness. The dictionary defines sensuality as, those, as, 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 as that which consists of just living purely for the senses. Living purely for the senses. What you hear, what you taste, what you touch, it's, it's the materialism of the day. God's warning us against this. And thirdly, covetousness or greed. These individuals are trained in greed. And yet, this is one of the sins that God is calling to our attention through this passage. Oftentimes, we need to be informed by God's word regarding if greed actually is really part of our motives. Right? Well, I was reading of of a good brother who... He's, a, he's, he's an author, he's a, he's a seminary professor, he's a pastor, and a while back he was given an opportunity, a ministry opportunity to go and minister here in this place, and then he was given another opportunity to go and minister in another place. And he noticed that he was more so drawn to the place where financially it was going to be a better opportunity, 
Whereas the needs over here were equally great, I should say, but the pay wasn't going to be as good. And so he was highlighting the fact that many of us are given opportunities, but yet are we... Are we viewing these opportunities for the opportunities themselves, the opportunity to glorify Christ and to make much of his name? Or is it that, what will I get out of it? How much does it pay? How much will it pay? Now, there's a sense in which that should matter to us because we need, and the Lord knows we need, to be sustained monetarily, financially. He knows these things, but ultimately, what's the motivation the opposite of arrogance is humility. The opposite of sensuality is self-control. And the opposite of covetousness is contentment. And Paul hammers home the reality of contentment in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Has the gospel so impacted your life that humility becomes a cardinal virtue, that self-control becomes a cardinal virtue, that Contentment becomes a cardinal virtue in your life. If, if we're to put these sins to death, if we are to say, yes, thank God that, 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 that I'm on the path to being a stable believer. I'm not going to be drawn towards false teaching. Great. But friends, you've got to continue to cultivate these characteristics in your life. And that happens by considering the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ the joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through Christ and he's calling everyone everywhere to repent of sin and trust Jesus Christ for salvation. This cultivates humility. It cultivates self-control. It cultivates contentment because the opposite of contentment is going to be covetousness and that comes from an insecurity of where you are positionally before God. And so friends, let's stand as we conclude this morning. I want to begin, I want to end, sorry, by quoting something from J.C. Ryle, written over a hundred years ago. He says, you live in a world where your soul is in constant danger. Enemies are around you on every side. Bad examples are numerous. Satan is always laboring to lead you astray. Above all, false doctrine and false teachers of every kind abound. This is your great danger. To be safe, you must be well armed. You must provide yourself with the weapons which God has given you for your help. You must store your mind with Holy Scripture. This is to be well armed. Arm yourself with a thorough knowledge of the written word of God. Neglect your Bible and nothing that I know of can prevent you from error if a plausible advocate of false teaching shall happen to meet you. You are the man that is unlikely to become established in the truth. I shall not be surprised to hear that you are troubled with doubts and questions about assurance, grace, faith, perseverance, etc. I shall not wonder if I am told that you have problems in your marriage, problems with your children, problems about the conduct of your family and about the company you keep. The world you steer through is full of rocks, shoals, and sandbanks, sandbanks, You are not sufficiently familiar either with lighthouses or charts. You are the man who is likely to be carried away by some false teacher for a time. It will not surprise me if I hear that one of these ever clever, eloquent men who can make a convincing presentation is leading you into error. 
You are in need of truth. No wonder if you are tossed to and fro like a cork on the waves. Friends, let us anchor ourselves in Scripture for the glory of Christ. Amen.